I don't know if any of you used to, or maybe you still do, buy comic books, but uh, I don't know, it may have come as a bit of a surprise to you, but when I was growing up, I liked comic books. I still actually have some of those comic books. I've talked about those before, but uh, when I was a young adolescent, uh, preteen, I really got into comic books for a particular time. I really liked G.I. Joe comic books, really liked G.I. Joe and some X-Men comic books. And one of the things you'd do, of course, you would just go, and at the time, you'd go to Dylan's or whatever it may be, and that particular month, you'd just wait until the one came out on the magazine rack. There'd be all the magazines lined up next to all the greeting cards, and at the end of the magazine rack, there's always this turntable rack in which they had the new comic books. And I couldn't wait till a new G.I. Joe came out, or new X-Men, something like that. One of the things I would also do is go to a comic book shop, and I wasn't spending a lot of money on a really high-priced collectible comic, but it made you feel like you were doing something of importance and uh, something with uh, importance with the collection realm when you'd actually go and buy like an early edition of a particular comic book. And obviously, they weren't worth a whole lot of money, or I couldn't afford them. But even with the ones that weren't worth a whole lot of money, you know what they'd often come with? A little certificate slipped inside the sleeve or the plastic thing that was their certificate of authenticity. This was the collector uh, or the, the dealer that was saying to the collectors, here is how we are going to verify that this is a legitimate first run of this particular comic or another. It was a certificate of authenticity. And what it did is it verified and said that this is the real thing. Now, when we come today in the midst of our sermon series in the book of Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, we're also talking about authenticity. But we're talking about authenticity in the realm of worship, in our lives, the worship of our lives, of course, as we talk about quite often. But, uh, but also when we come together, we see that when we come together like this, gathered here, or gathered in Bible study, gathered in small groups, maybe even by ourselves in the midst of a car, whatever it may be, our worship must be authentic. And authentic worship follows the worship of an authentic life. And, and we see that worship is far more than just what we do when we gather, but it really is the whole of our life. And so when we come to this book of Proverbs, in particular uh, passage today in the book of Proverbs, again in verse, or chapter 15, we see that the one who follows righteousness, which we draw the title from today, him who follows righteousness, he, he loves him, God loves him who follows righteousness, the one who is an authentic worshiper with the entirety of his life. And so we see not only authentic worship, but authentic worship authenticates the gospel to the outside world. The gospel does not fail. The good news that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, the one who came to forgive us and save us from our sin, does not change based upon how we portray him, but to the lost world. It portrays the authenticity of this gospel message that we speak. Is it real or is it not? And so let's look here in verses 8 through 9. Of Proverbs 15. How do we live our lives? Do we live a life of authentic worship or do we live a life ignoring our Lord? The sacrifice, listen to this, there's strong words here. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the, to the Lord. We're like, ooh, that makes the hair stand up on the back of our neck. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, he says. The way then, but he loves him who follows righteousness. Now, if you're here with us today and you're not a Christ follower, 
Maybe you don't attend church, you're not a church attender, maybe you're not a Christ follower, we're going to differentiate between what the two of those things are, but maybe this is your first time to church or you haven't been to church in quite a while and you think, gosh, is this talking about me? In a certain extent, when we get to the point when we're talking about does God uh, honor ritual, are we made right with God simply out of ritual? Yes, that does apply. But what this specifically talks about when you see it in the midst of the context and in the entirety of the context of God's people of the Old Testament, this talks about those that if we are sort of translated into our modern context of those who are going through the motions of being part of a church, those who are going through the motions of thinking that that ritual is pleasing unto the Lord, but really it brings them no closer. This is talking about do God's people have the heart of worship? Now, here's the thing heart of authenticity. Here's the thing. Worship doesn't make up a gap. Listen to this. Write this down. Worship doesn't make up a gap in our unconsecrated life. Your life is your worship. Worship doesn't make up a gap in an unconsecrated life. Your life is your worship. Let's break that down for a minute here as you're writing it down. Oftentimes in what the people of Israel, God's people, God's chosen people, you see it all throughout the Old Testament. We're going to bring some of those passages in today. The people of Israel, his chosen people thought, okay, it doesn't matter what our heart is. It doesn't matter what my heart is like. Do I truly love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and strength? They might say that's true, but the way they were living it out is that it doesn't really matter as long as I'm checking off the boxes of going through rites of ritual and rites of feast days, again, translating it into our day, as long as I'm doing sort of spiritual things, as long as I'm checking off the box of coming to church or checking off the box of doing this particular thing or that particular thing, they said, okay, I can do whatever I want. I can live any way I want to. My heart can be uh, focused on anything that I want it to be as long as I'm sort of checking these boxes. And they were just kind of going through the motions of religiosity. And God says, that's not what pleases me. That's not what I want. I don't want your religion. I don't want your your festivals and your feasts that are empty. I want and I care about your heart. So worship doesn't make up a gap in an unconsecrated life. That's a big word, but when we talk about consecration, remember we have to first bring in the idea of sanctification, another big word, but let me break it down very carefully for you here. For those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we've committed our lives unto him. We've been born again. God is in the process of changing us and making us daily more and more like Jesus Christ. Positionally, he looks at us and he sees Jesus. He looks at us and he sees that we are perfect, pure, holy, blameless, sinless, uh, perfect and pure in all of our ways. But practically, we know on a daily basis that's not our reality. So what's God doing? He, each and every day, is sanctifying us through his Holy Spirit to match our positional reality that we are pure in Christ with our practical reality, our daily reality, and bringing those two things together. That's the process of sanctification. He's matching our eternal, our new eternal nature, our new identity in him and in Jesus Christ. He's matching it with our daily practical reality. He's bringing us closer and closer to Jesus Christ each and every day. That is sanctification. That's not ultimately our job. What is our job? Our job is to yield to that process each and every day. Our job is to to submit ourselves and commit ourselves again each and every day unto the Lord in his process of making us more like Jesus. That is the process. That is our choice. That is our responsibility of 
Consecration. We are consecrating ourselves. We are committing ourselves unto God each and every day and say, God, I have, you are the God who saved me through your son, Jesus Christ. And out of gratitude and knowing that your way is best for my life, I'm committing to you again, afresh and anew today. Do your work in my life. And that's what God wants from us because that speaks to the heart. That speaks to the authenticity of the heart. That speaks to the authenticity of a worshipful life that we are submitting and committing ourselves daily unto the Lord. And that's what he wants from us. But oftentimes we think we can make up that gap. You know, if I'm not, if, if I'm not committing myself to the Lord daily, I'm not saying with him practically in my life that I know, God, your way is best. I know and I trust you that you are the loving almighty God who always wants what's best for me, even when it's difficult for me. So I'm going to trust you with the choices of my life. I'm going to read your word and I'm going to say, you know what? That particular thing you're calling me to might be difficult. It might be a complete 180 from the way I've lived my life, but I'm going to trust you and do it. That's what God desires from us. That is the consecrated life. And just checking boxes on a list, going through a rote ritual will not make up that gap. But your life, your life is your worship. And so let's again look at verse 8. The very first thing that we see here is very simply the worship. The worship. Verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Write this down again. Worship is not a matter of rote ritual and dusty routine. That's not what worship is. It is not a matter of rote ritual just sort of going through motions And dusty routine. Worship begins with one's own life. Therefore, God is not pleased with the worship of empty religion. That's not what he's looking for. God's not looking for us to kind of come and check a box each and every day, uh, each and every Sunday, and then we just sort of the sum total of that is we have some sort of a, a Christian social club. God wants the gathering together of his people, whether it be Sunday mornings or Wednesdays or Bible studies or coffee at Starbucks or whatever it wants. That stuff is the outpouring of the overflow, the overflow of a life that's consecrated unto him daily, the heart that is stayed and focused upon the Lord. See, here's the thing. Even worship prescribed by God can be repulsive to him when it is a matter, when it's focused on externals. What do I mean by that? Some of the things that he was talking about in the midst of this passage and the one that we're going to put up on the screen in just a few moments are things that God prescribed. Some of the rituals that he talked about, he told them to do it. So the people might say to God, okay, well, what's the deal, God? You told us to do these things. Why are these things not something that please you now? Because he's saying, I don't, I'm not looking for the checklist. I'm looking for your heart. And what he also says is, guess what? When your heart is stayed and focused on me, that is what your heart truly desires. We talk about it many times before, Ezekiel chapter 14, a focus of idolatry. We often think that idolatry simply means that we put some sort of trinket on a shelf and we make some sort of empty prayers to it. But the biblical idea of idolatry is anything that captures your heart other than God. If God is not what has captured your heart, then that thing that has captured your heart, whether it be an an, an item, whether it be a purchase, whether it be money, whether it be success, whether it be a person, that thing has become an idol. And guess what? God is not petty. He's not telling you that that's idolatry because it kind of, uh, in a petty way, has hurt his feelings. 
He is the, the God that deserves glory and focus. But guess what? He is also telling you your heart was made for far more than that idol that you're focused on. When your heart is focused and stayed upon him, that was what your heart's made for. That is when you'll find your satisfaction. That is when you'll find your joy. But God wants us to focus more on just the emptiness of religiosity, focus more on just than, than externals. We've all probably seen um, documentaries or maybe movies about the mafia or whatever, and oftentimes you'll have these mafia movies where they're going out doing all sorts of terrible things, and then they end up going to church at some point in the movie as well. And this is an example of just kind of going through the motions of religiosity and not connecting the heart with what God has called us to do. Listen to this. That's going to seem really strong word and some of the strongest words you will see in all of Scripture. And remember, folks, remember, folks, God is speaking to those, those of the quote-unquote religious that are going through the motions. If you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have never been to church, you are just searching, God is talking about people that are going through the motions. God is not talking about you who is searching searching for him. Listen to this. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Listen to this. This is the loving God. This is the almighty loving God who speaks with such strength. He says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I don't savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer to me burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. God was the one that told him to have those feast days. God was the one that said, these are the things that you're to do as a matter of worship. But God didn't want those things as a matter of just emptiness. God didn't want just kind of going through the motions. What did God want? God wanted their heart. In the, in the matter of the heart that is consecrated to God, what does it play itself out in? We see it here in verse 24, with justice, justice, he says, let it run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. But what does he say in the second part of this verse? But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Here's the thing, the infinite God, the fact that the infinite God cares about a finite man, we cannot get, we can never bypass that. We can never let that go uh, too easily. The fact that God, the infinite God of the universe, cares about finite you and me, not only cares about us so much, but he desires our prayers. And it's not as though we're sort of sending up prayers into the nether regions of nothingness. We are praying to God, and he wants to hear our prayers, and he answers our prayers. But even the Pharisee, as we talked about in Luke 18 last week, was praying to a certain extent. He was going through the motions. Do you remember the Pharisee from last week? If you didn't join us last week, to give you a little background on who Pharisees were, Pharisees were these incredibly powerful leaders in the first century in the days of Jesus Christ. There was a mix, unlike what we have, of a combination of a religious and political figure, and they were incredibly powerful. And so Jesus tells this this parable of a Pharisee that comes to the temple to pray and also in the parable a tax collector that comes to pray. You say, okay, what's the big deal there? Tax collectors were looked at by the Jewish people as traitors. They were collecting taxes for Rome. Rome was the one that, had, that occupied the nation of Israel at the time, and so these were Jewish people sent out by Rome to collect taxes from their own people. 
Not only would they collect taxes from their own people and give to the oppressive Rome, but oftentimes these tax collectors would skim off the top or they would mark up the taxes so that they would take extra money themselves. These were looked at as the lowest of the low. And Jesus tells a parable in the midst of all the people and when, when this whole question is, is, is raging about what does it matter? If, if it, does it, is it the heart or is it going through the motions? And you could see that the Pharisees were the perfect example of just going through the motions, but their heart was not where it meant to be. And Jesus says the Pharisee walks into the temple and he prays, God, and just in proud and a loud voice and his face lifted to heaven, and he says, I am so glad, thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector over here. Thank you that, you have, that I am holy and I am not like this tax collector over here. But what did Jesus say? The tax collector humbled himself. He was broken. His heart was broken. He said he wouldn't even look unto heaven. And he said, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. See, oftentimes we would think, well, the Pharisee, that's the powerful one that's checking off all the boxes of the externals. But Jesus said it was the heart of the tax collector, the one that was broken, the one that was broken. He had the humble, honest heart. His heart was a heart of worship. So very simply, we see the worship and we see also the walk. The walk is the worship. Verse 9, the way... Not now the worship, not now the sacrifice, but the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But he loves him. God loves him who follows righteousness. God loves him who follows righteousness. Listen to this. One's worship is a direct reflection upon one's walk. One's worship is a direct reflection upon one's walk, how you live your daily life. One may be able to fool others. But God always knows the heart, and that's what God wants. He cares about the heart. He doesn't care about it just for his own good. Yes, he loves and cares for us, and, and, and we seek to glorify him with all that we are, but he is telling you in the loving kindness of a father, he says, I've created you. I've created your heart. I know where your heart is going to find rest. I know where your heart is going to find joy. I know where your heart is going to find satisfaction. I know where your heart is going to find peace. And it's not going to be found in the externals out there of religiosity. It's not going to be found in what the world says is going to bring you happiness and joy. Your heart is going to find its rest and its happiness and its joy when it is stayed and focused upon me. God wants our heart not just for his sake, but for ours as well. You see, here's the root of the matter. When we talk about our worship is a matter of our way or our life, your daily life is your sacrifice. That is the sacrifice. When we come together with prescribed worship or prescribed things that we're called to do, whether it be the people of Israel or whether it be us as we're gathered together in worship together and in prayer and gathered together as God's family, those things, again, are an overflow of a consecrated, sacrificial life. Let us go to probably the most important passage on this. Many of you know it very well, but for those of you who don't, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, let us read it together and let me break it down for you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. This is Paul writing, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to, to God, which is your reasonable service or your act of sacrifice. He's saying, live your lives. That is your act of sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world press you into its mold, but be transformed. How? You say, well, how am I to be transformed? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by immersing your mind in things of God, in his word, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our life is our act of sacrifice. Now you say to yourself, well, gosh, is there no place in this for the, the person who is unsaved? The person who has not yet given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there no place for the one who is still growing in their faith? The one who is not yet mature and still struggling with sin? Absolutely, there is a place for those. First of all, we we have to remember if you are in this room today and you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never come to that place of salvation. You have to understand the root of these verses to absolutely apply to you and the fact that just going through the motions will not get you any closer to God. We are so glad that you're here with us today. But coming to church on a regular basis gets you no closer to God. Coming to church on a regular basis, reading the Bible on a regular basis, does not earn for yourself forgiveness. That does, your record is not, is not expunged by, by how many times you come to church. The Bible says that all of us, all mankind, every, every one of us, have fallen short of the glory of God, and because of sin, we've been separated from God. And the natural tendency of mankind is to say, well, okay, if I do enough good things, if I do enough good deeds, if I come to church enough, if I read my Bible enough, well, then maybe the scales of my life will tip to the good. God says there is nothing that we can do. There is no amount of good works. There is no amount of religiosity that we can do that will bring us any closer to to God. That divide between man and God can only be bridged by his son, the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ came to this earth all those years ago, died upon the cross for your sin and for mine. And then if we commit our lives to him, we turn over our lives to him. Jesus said, repent, turn from your old way of life and believe, believe on him as your savior and your Lord, giving your life unto him. Then you will be forgiven. Then you will be cleansed, not of good works so that no one would boast, but through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, giving your life unto him. So you say, is there a place in this for the person who does not know Jesus Christ? Absolutely. We must first see that religiosity. Please understand that religious exercise, checking of boxes gets you no closer to God. But the loving God, the, the, the amazing loving God of heaven comes down and reaches down to you through the person of Jesus Christ. You say, what about the immature? What about the person who's still growing in their faith? Absolutely, there's a place for you in this. God is not talking about the heart, the genuine heart that is trying to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ and is allowing God to to sanctify them and change their life. He is talking about the person who thinks they're right with God, the person who thinks that their religiosity is all that God wants. They're living and their heart is is placed on things of the world. Their heart is placed on themselves. And then they try to check off boxes to make themselves right with God. God's saying that is what he rejects. But yes, he is looking for and he is sensitive to the heart that is broken just like that tax collector and is trying to grow and to come closer to the Lord Jesus Christ.
What's at stake here? What's at stake? In the midst of a church, we have to understand what's at stake is that we have to value. In church life, we have to value things that are most important to God. We have to value spiritual maturity over anything else. We have to value um, consecrated life over anything else. We have to value those things that are valuable unto God. The other thing we have to remember is that the gospel is at stake. Our way or the way we live our lives either open the door for the gospel with those that are lost or it closes it. Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. You don't have to turn there. Just listen with me as I read this here. Malachi chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. That's another word for the unbelieving peoples of the earth. God says his name will be great amongst all the earth. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name. It's this prophetic speaking that that all the nations of the earth will lift up praise unto God and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord. But he says again to his people, to his people, his chosen people of Israel, the ones that should have known him best, he, he says, but you've profaned it. In that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit and its food is contemptible. Also you say, oh, what weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord. He says his own people, his own people in contrast to one day those from every nation, tribe, and tongue that will bring true and authentic worship unto the Lord. He says in contrast to that, his own people... The nation of Israel, in, in, back in these days of the Old Testament, what were they doing? They weren't bringing him their best. They were bringing him the second best, the leftovers, leftovers of things. And what did it mean? It meant that their heart wasn't right. Their heart wasn't stayed upon him. God wants our best. God wants all of your heart. God wants all of you. But in this second part of this verse, in verse 9, it says, But he loves him, God loves him, who follows righteousness. God's not petty. He's the infinite God of the universe that spoke into existence all that we see. But he is the infinitely just and loving God. He's not petty. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. But yet we have been given, he is, he is, we have been given the right to worship and to, and, and to love him and care for him just as he loves and cares for us. But think about this. How can we say that we truly love him when we reject his commands? Jesus himself said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Because what it is, it says, in not just some sort of a, an ethereal way, not some sort of a, a, a way with no details, with no meat on the bones, but a very, in a very specific way, we are saying unto God, I love you, and I love you enough that I trust you with my life more than me. And so when you call me to do this, Lord God, I am going to do it. So what should our attitude of worship be? If our way, if our life is our act of worship unto God, what should the attitude of a life, of a way of worship be? Look at this, Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Take a look on the screen. Read along with me here. With what shall I come before the Lord? 
with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Again, should I just come kind of checking the box, doing the things of religiosity? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands rivers of oils? Shall I give my firstborn for, for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He says, should I go through all of those things? Is that what God wants? Does he want me to check all these boxes and go through all of these rituals and rites? No. What does God tell him as the the writer here is saying, and and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what does God want? He has shown you, verse 8, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Folks, listen to that. We don't serve an aloof, distant deity somewhere that just says, yeah, uh, give your sacrifice, kind of leave it at the door, do what you will, make sure you're doing it, make sure you're doing all that stuff, and just leave your sacrifice at the door, and I I don't want any part of you. We don't serve a distant, aloof God. We serve the infinite God of the universe in, in, in all of his infinitude, still cares about finite you and finite me, and he wants you. He doesn't want your religiosity. He wants you. He wants your heart. So you say to yourself, well, what can I do? What can I do? I know Jesus Christ as my Savior, but I, Pastor, I understand. I've gotten in a rut of just sort of walking through the motions. I've just sort of gotten in a rut, and, and maybe I'm part of a sort of a collective of a rut in which I am, I am part of, of what's happening where any church, any church just like ours, any church in the city of Wichita or across this globe can, can at times fall into a groove of just sort of getting into religious social club. And you say, Pastor, I am part that could, could honestly lead us down that road, but I want to change my heart. I want to change my heart. What do I do? You say, isn't it still hypocrisy to try to, if my heart's not fully engaged in that, isn't it hypocrisy? to try to do that, to try to engage my heart when it's not really there? Should I wait for my heart to engage? On one hand, yes, you should pray that God would change your heart. Change your heart so you don't feel like it's hypocrisy and pretending. But I love what the great C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all times, he calls it good pretending. He says bad pretending is hypocrisy, trying to pretend as though you're something you're not. But he said, good pretending is exactly what the believer in Jesus Christ should do. You are kind of trying to elevate yourself under the power of the Holy Spirit to exactly what your identity is in Christ, that you are righteous. What does he say here? He says, that's why children's games are so important. They are always pretending. Children are always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop. But all the time, they're hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretense of being grown up helps them to grow up in earnest. He's saying part of their growing up is the fact that they're trying to be grown ups. And he says that is a wonderful illustration for us as we're growing up in our faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, we ask God to change our heart, but we don't just sit there and wait. We don't just sit there and wait and say, well, if my heart fills up to 80% capacity, well, then I'm going to act. He says, no, you begin to act, act upon what you know is right. Begin to follow the ways of Jesus Christ. Begin to give, it, give him your heart. We are practicing who we already are in Christ. We're not doing the bad pretending, as he might say, of hypocrisy, but we are practicing who we already are in Christ. 
I love this quote by a guy named Joe Rigney as he was giving a review of the, the writing here of C.S. Lewis. He says, a spirit-filled, what is it? What does he call, what does he understand this pretending in the mind of C.S. Lewis to be? It is a spirit-led attempt at consistency. It's a spirit-led attempt at consistency. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells in your life, and you have what you need to live consistently by the Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not pretending to be in substituting some sort of reality. We're not substituting a heart that is darkened to God for religious ritual, but we are practicing who we are in Christ. Folks, more than anything, more than anything, our church, more than a building, more than uh, programming, more than money, more than whatever it may be that we could check off on a list and say, what does our church need? Our church needs each and every one of us as its members. Our church needs hearts of authenticity, hearts that worship the Lord. That's what we need. That's how we'll change Wichita. That's how we'll change the world. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to you now, we pray for those hearts of authenticity. It can be easy for any of us to just sort of go through the motions of ritual and religion when our hearts are not given over to you. Just sort of go through the motion and just hope that's going to make up the gap. But Lord, you want more than that. You're not petty. You're not angry. You're not mean. You're not some sort of capricious, jealous, fly-off-the-handle, vengeful deity. But Lord, you are a straight-shooting God that tells us exactly what we need to hear. And you tell us not only what you desire, but what is good for us is not our ritual. It's our heart. And so God, I ask that for any of us that have been mired in just sort of going through the motions of religious ritual... God, would you capture our hearts again? God, for those who are here today and do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they've not been born again. They've not been made new. Would they take away from this the truth, too, that that there's no amount of ritual, there's no amount of doing good that brings them any closer to you. But again, you want their heart. You want them to surrender their life unto your son, Jesus Christ. That's what brings forgiveness. That's what brings change. In the name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen.